Welcome, everyone, to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I am Bitchel Ritson, here, as always, with my lovely co-host, Nilrun Mardux. And joining us for the first time today, the final head of our of our Cerebus, Hapsel Rigner. Uh, welcome, welcome to the show, Hapsel. We're really glad to have you on. I am excited to be here. Yeah, so, so Hapsel is going to be joining us as a new co-host. You know, many around Urbit already know him from the original Urbit podcast, The Stack. So got a lot of experience and he's been working with, with Ukbar and overall smart guy, you know, the Edward DeVere enthusiast. So we're, we're really glad to be able to have some conversations with you. And join, joining us today, uh, brought on by Habsol, so already pulling his weight, is uh, a really fun guest. We've got Shen Yang, as she is known on Twitter, also Forlight Navmep on Urbit, and she is the the creator of Daobi, a Chinese you know government simu- on chain simulation game. She's a, a scholar, an academic, a translator, and someone really brilliant to talk to. Yeah, I'm quite excited to have her on because you know a lot. There's this perception that you know crypto is not really there, so it's fun to see someone who just took kind of this academic background and applied it to create a crypto game and a game that's you know pretty compelling and could be re-implemented in a lot of different contexts as well yeah it's not only just the 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 game and the way that she's implementing these you know ancient chinese laws with smart contracts but she also has built this game using um, different ai agents and i think we're going to get into some further discussion of ai that she does in her as she calls it, her her real life job with with LexiCAD and different, you know, language models and and building AI for Burmese and all these really interesting topics that I, I think are going to really be fun to dive into. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited to uh, hear about this runaway AI that's going to take over the world that she's building um, and destroy basically destroy us all. Yeah, she's the one that's going to bring about the apocalypse. So I mean. If she does that, frankly, a great, a really good nab for us as a guest, right? That's a pretty high value target there. If she's the one who actually ends the world, yeah. So, uh, without further ado, we'll we'll get to the conversation. Welcome back to the Network Age, and I am here with our wonderful guest, known online and on Twitter and uh, through ancient Chinese circles across the web as Sen Yang. Also, Forlight Navmep on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited um, to talk to you. There's so many. You seem to have your fingers in a lot of pies, as it were. You know, you are a an academic, a translator. You are a, an AI enthusiast. And of course, you have been working on the Daobi Project, which is a blockchain simulation of Ancient China, a game where people compete with each other for resources and political power, which, you know, seems like a, a ton of fun. And so there's there's a lot to, to get into here. And, um, you know, I would love to just hear sort of how you how you ended up in this space, how you took such an interesting path from academic to 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 crypto lord and, and working on this really cool game. Oh, yeah. So my sort of first love in life was uh, self-regulating systems. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that the best textbooks on how to build these self-regulating, emergent, complex, whatever you want to call it, systems are 
classical Chinese texts. So if you really want to get in deep, you have to learn classical Chinese. So I started doing that and um, uh, I've got a translation of the stratagems of the warring states coming out soon, which that, that's more game theory than emergent systems, but um, there isn't currently a good translation of it out there, so I figured I'd do it. Um, and yeah, from from reading up in the books, which are all very much practical manuals to how to build these systems, you start to think, well, I can't just leave this sitting there and never try it out for myself. And back in the day, you, you would have to be sort of a, a king or a prime minister or something to build one of these um, these fantastically complex political economical systems. But right now, you can do it on the internet quite easily. So that's what we started doing. And and when you say your your first love in life was a self regulating system, are you talking about you know sort of political systems, dynasties, you know? computer programs, what, what caught your interest and what were you trying to explore and, and simulate? I would say the sort of thing that used to be referred to as cybernetics, but then cybernetics became overused as a term and, and started to mean nothing. Um, my favorite example of the genre, which is one that everyone can sort of get instantly, is one that is in um, uh, the Book of Lord Shang from uh, about 300 BC. Uh, so he describes a system where the state should offer a reward such that if anyone who's been bribed by another bureaucrat to participate in a conspiracy against the rulers denounces that conspiracy, the person who bribed him will be executed and he will inherit all of his property and titles. So... <laughs> It means that you can't bribe anyone more than they will get for denouncing you and costs mm. the state nothing. Sort of like the so US whistleblower laws yeah. where you get like a 10% <laughs> reward for the fine. Yeah, I mean, 10% is pretty cheap, I feel. They, sh they should go all out, um, execute <laughs> them and give you his wife and, uh, and his, all his estates. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a nice little system that maintains itself such that Ideally, it never needs to get activated because it's that good. And and so you have all this familiarity and expertise with these these regulations that seem that come from ancient China. And your idea, right, was all right. Let's let's put these let's put these to the test. If they're if they're actually going to work, we want to see them work. And you decided to create a, a game that allows people to simulate this and explore this and take each other's wives i presume i presume there's a lot of wife <laughs> wife swapping and stealing in uh in your simulation that's most of oh, this is about right in the dms yeah the dms get quite spicy <laughs> uh, i've seen screenshots so yeah yeah and and this does seem to lend itself quite well to to smart contracts really i mean when i was looking over uh some of the the writing you've done and some information about dalby it seemed like that was really a perfect marriage in its way. So I'd be curious if you could tell us about how the blockchain components of this game and simulation work. So I think the blockchain is really a, a perfect environment in which to create a system where, um, this is going to sound terribly pretentious, but... Uh, <laughs> Please. <laughs> uh, power is an empty space. It's um, a quote from, I think, Claude Lefort. Uh, 
uh, if you say it we believe it anything you say with confidence (laughs) we'll we'll go with it (laughs) so so he described um democracy as being being a system under which power is an empty space you you can only occupy it for a certain amount of time and uh, and then everyone respects the system more than they respect any given leader so if if a certain guy gets kicked out then he gets kicked out and suddenly the chair is empty and, and we've got to find someone else to put in it. Um, so that is something that is is relatively difficult to enforce in a in a real world environment with with only humans with guns to to sort of fight it out between them. As you see, you know, in, in new democracies in, in the Balkans or in Africa or wherever, but on chain, the chain enforces it. So you have a lot less difficulty in imposing this idea of, of power as an empty space. So you, you can do a lot of interesting things with governance quite easily. Where did you... So before we get to the blockchain, um, maybe, uh, how did you how did you begin simulating this stuff? You know, like, th- this was not your first attempt at simulating sort of like, uh, what can we say, self, self-stabilizing... Um, I'm I'm not even sure what to call it. Like c- coming to a to a stable state given uh, a lot of different agent actors. Oh yeah, the the dynamic equilibria. So right. To speak. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I did a PhD um, comparing ideas of legitimacy in classical Chinese and and European philosophy. And the the core idea behind that was that um, in Europe, a leader is is based on who can protect you from from enemies. So so you define your leader based on the guy who the guy who is going to protect us from them. And under such a system, you're going to follow almost as a an instinctive reflex the second strongest person in the system. Because obviously the strongest one is the most threatening, so you want to follow whoever is going to help you hedge against that. Mm. Um, and then, by contrast, in China, the leader is the guy who is going to make you rich. So uh, historically, foreign attacks and and you know invading tribes and so on were a much smaller threat in China, and it was natural disasters that were the biggest threat to people. So anyone who could stop your farm from flooding and thereby make you rich that was your leader so so then you just follow you follow the richest and the most generous guy basically um and it's two really simple algorithms that any one person or any group of people can uh, implement very easily or you can simulate it using agent-based modeling platforms so you just give every agent a a generous a wealth and a generosity score um and tell them tell the followers who they who they should choose to, to follow, and, um, and the system builds itself from scratch. And then you can play around and sort of knock it over and create natural disasters and see, see what happens, how it really builds itself. So we used, um, we used a platform called uh, Mesa, which is a, a Python agent-based modeling platform. And I wrote about three lines of the code because I actually suck at coding. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, props go to, to I think I think Prasad and, and Singjing who did most of it. You wrote an you wrote an essay about uh, learning and AI, and it was you drew a distinction between Confucian 
the Confucian conception of, of how we learn and the Taoist conception of how we learn. And the Confucian method is like the 20th century understanding of education, which is that you uh, sort of try to get as much information about the world as possible by doing by by uh, study of study of the classics or how the sages solve problems and things like that, and you just collect a whole bunch of formula basically or uh, examples. And so when a new problem presents itself, you search through your sort of database of of all the solutions that have come before and choose one to apply it to. Is that fair for the Confucians? Yeah, yeah. And then the Taoists, on the other hand, say actually the you know the world is a very uh, chaotic place. It's it's in flux, and you you can't rely on previous knowledge. In fact, what you have to do is try a whole bunch of solutions and and keep trying solutions until you find the least suboptimal solution. So this is like the less wrong idea of of learning, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And then you go on to say, actually, neither of these, or or like both of these conceptions together, uh, kind of like don't matter in the end. I think that I think that I'm fair in saying that. And actually, uh, you just sort of like a ra- any rational approach to learning is actually um, kind of nonsense. And what we actually do is is uh, I, I may be overstating the case, but what we actually do is is just what try a whole bunch of stuff out and. And so, like, there's the this this idea of uh, human rationality. Like, we think that we we're actually making rational decisions, and, or and then we we have human irrationality, and we're trying to get rid of irrationality. And actually, sort of like in our economic models, if you put if you if you try to solve for human irrationality, that's actually less a, a less optimal solution. And and economic models that worry about that kind of thing sort of uh, are less good economic models. Is that right? Yeah, I think I would. I'm sort of personally prefer. Uh, I favor the the Taoist model, which I think is probably slightly slightly obvious from uh, from what I wrote. But I'm not against the Confucian one either. And, and in design, in sort of the the various AI designs that we've made, they they do tend to use a combination of both. So um, I'm looking at some of your old tweets, and you say no Confucians allowed. <laughs> basically so i don't know <laughs> it sounds like yeah. they're second class citizens in your, in your uh, kingdom that that is kind of a running joke because um <laughs> you know i i get more engagement from the anti-confucian tweets than from the ones that are all reasonable <laughs> and saying that actually they do have a point so mm-hmm. well this is this so, is kind of interesting because you're you're being trained you know like to follow yeah. a certain path by your by all these different agents clicking the yeah, like button yeah. <laughs> is well, so are our our coming AI overlords? Are they going to be Taoists or Confucians? How are they learning? How are they going to uh, exploit us? Uh, so, if they follow my preferred designs, which I or my predictions, I would say, because okay. uh, the designs aren't entirely made, um, I would say it's going to be a mixture of both. So, um, basically, they they're going to spam solutions until they find a good one add that to the database and then use the database of good solutions to retrain themselves for the next round. So is this this really is like a, a fusion of these two things, the, the two learning models, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So okay. I'm very Confucian tolerance in real life when I'm not <laughs> fishing for likes. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I watched the la- the the first two Terminator movies recently, uh, because of my AI fear and Skynet. <laughs> I thought I should familiarize myself with the canon, you know, and how this is going to going to happen. And I think was in, the Terminator Term- Confucian or Taoist? That's what I'm saying. I think Terminator uh-huh. in the first one was a Confucian. You know, he's got all the 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 classics downloaded in his brain he has all the solutions and he's trying to execute one task and, and running through a number of different solutions that he already understands to get there but when he, arnold comes back in the second one he starts learning you know from the chaos of, of earth to value human life you know he he learns to do a high five which is not in his programming and that sort of opens up a whole <laughs> new world of living and learning and understanding and if, the, if there's anything that the Taoists are known for it's it's high fives i uh, yes exactly um, <laughs> I never thought of that before, but yeah, you you make a good point. Thank you. Yeah, well, this is all uh, comes from ancient Chinese texts. I'm really just repurposing, <laughs> as as I'm sure you you recognize as a scholar. So I I think that to to bring this back to to Daobi, this is it's sort of an interesting combination of really relevant things here because on on one hand you have sort of this like classic tabletop gaming desire to run simulations and play ancient um, you know king and, and all that but it really is only becoming possible to do this on a large scale with the the advent of you know increasingly complex ais and um, blockchain technology so i'm i'm curious if you think or where you think what types of experiences are going to continue to be unlocked uh because of these technologies and that can be you know giant metaverse Chinese simulations, or it can be um, something more particular. But as someone who has their hands in these things, where where do you think they're, they're taking us? I would hope that we're heading towards a place where people are less afraid to experiment with governance. I would say that the first wave of, of Web3 projects, and and especially games, but projects in general, um, they were this sort of pseudo decentralized model where, as under ordinary circumstances, the blockchain behaves broadly like a blockchain, but they, the founders do kind of keep a handle on it and they have a fail safe somewhere in it where if if an emergency happens, they they can step in and tinker with it. Um, and of course the way that humans work is if if you provide a way to tinker then people will find an excuse to tinker and and then it falls apart sort of i mean even even ethereum to a degree is kind of pseudo decentralized there's a lot of centralized power in it mm. but where you get the real novelty is when you give people the freedom to to fuck up your chain basically and <laughs> <laughs> and what are you finding from running dalby like how does the live agents acting with crypto differ from, for example, simulations that predated crypto and the ability to just give people digital scarcity and see what they do with it? Oh, people are way more compliant than computers. Really? <laughs> oh, this you is good to know. it would be the opposite. Um, <laughs> they, they centralize much faster and the resulting structure is a lot more solid. I think as, because they understand the incentives to which they're subject, they can reason through it and and predict the outcome of the next stage. So that by anticipating the next stage, they make the next stage happen, which computers don't do. They just spam moves until something works. 
Mm. So if we gave, if we were just looking at simulations run by the computers of like ancient China, we would see maybe like what another hundred or two hundred years of conflict before there's like a new emperor. Versus with humans, they actually coalesce <laughs> quite quickly. Is that is that a fair yeah. takeaway? Yeah, I mean, when we run our agent-based models, usually you will have sort of two, three, four hundred turns of, um, you know, three kingdoms style. A state emerges and then collapses and is replaced by another state. And then over time, the states last a bit longer and a bit longer until you get basically stasis. What what does stasis look like? Is it it like a hierarchical structure? Yeah, you see... um, so in China, it's in the Chinese simulation, it's a flat, it's a pretty flat hierarchy with one main player who's who's the emperor, and then maybe a couple of lieutenants, and everyone else is a peasant. And yeah, you you will see that occasionally the dynasty, you know, whoever is in charge will change the the whole thing will change color, but it's it very rarely splits apart into two. This is to to students of Chinese history. This um, may sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I think the more interesting one was the the Anglo-European model for that because when we when we wrote it we expected it to create a sort of two-party system where you've got the reds and the blues and they they switch power occasionally as everyone moves to follow the second strongest as a form of protection. And it it does create a two-party system, but the two parties are factions of a single bigger party. Mm, also sounds familiar. <laughs> Which yeah. <laughs> The computer was a lot more cynical than we were, and more accurate as well. I think is is a much better description of the U.S. system than than uh, the boring old two party model. Well, it's kind of scary when the the com- the computer is um, you know more cynical than humans. It doesn't bode well for uh, for alignment. I guess if you if you're having more trouble wrangling the the computers creating peace than uh, than the humans, who are not a species known for peace, I would say. Well, it's it, it is. I mean, these are very simple model, I mean, simple agents, right? It's a very simple agent model, right? It's not like as you were saying earlier. It's not, um, it's not able to do what humans are able to do, which is think, you know, maybe three or four moves ahead. It's simply sort of reacting per generation or something like that. Yeah, uh, and it, we had a longish discussion, I think, on Twitter or somewhere on Discord um, about whether what it is doing actually cons constitutes learning because obviously these models don't have the um the confucian ability to stockpile precedent for future use (laughs) they they just react to whatever situation they're in but um every time a stable configuration collapses it's in a slightly better position to rebuild itself into a more stable configuration in the next turn so gradually the worst possible configurations drop out and don't reappear and is that learning? It, I mean, it looks like learning, but should it be considered learning qua learning? I don't know. Well, it's going to be very, it's very spicy to consider that the best possible con- configuration is actually, you know, an emperor, a few lieutenants, and a mass of peasants. <laughs> a bunch of peasants. <laughs> That's, that sounds like some, some mold bug stuff right there. Yeah. Oh, God, the dark elves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, where are the dark elves in ancient China? Uh, that, that's definitely the legalists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're going to offend all our legalist listeners out there. Like, oh, all oh, three of them. It's- <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm curious if, like, in running this, this game and experimenting with these new 
technologies like what has surprised you you most about this like has have like you know have there been any like deep insights from running this or do you feel, feel like we're we still just need to keep cranking out the simulations to be able to you know draw any conclusions uh from from this project i i would say the <laughs> a couple of things one was the the u.s politics thing which really surprised me and um it shouldn't have done but it did um one i think was uh the extent to which these simulations do look as though they're learning it, it was kind of an uncanny valley moment seeing that happen because it was doing something that it shouldn't theoretically be capable of doing and i think the third was just a really strange moment we had in december of last year and it was the day after i'd ceded control of the contracts to the dow um so i no longer had editing privileges and i couldn't upgrade the contracts or touch them or anything um the next day my account got hacked i got i had two wallets compromised <laughs> including the deployer <laughs> wallet uh, and they absolutely—I I still had two Uniswap positions in them, and those Uniswap positions got absolutely run through, and I lost about three hundred dollars off of that. That's like the uh. no, sorry, it's, it's, it's like the James Kirk uh, solution to the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. I, I know everybody listening is going to get this reference, but it's like oh. uh, you know, you just you just reprogram the computer to win. <laughs> yeah, well, it's and it was a stupid hack as well. It was. Um, Someone sent me a link to one of the million Neopets ripoffs, uh, blockchain Neopets ripoffs. <laughs> and because I'd been looking at one of the in-game wallets from one of them, I, th I just assumed this was relevant and clicked on it. And then I realized, fuck, I've installed a Trojan here. Um, mm. And that is 100% historically accurate because traditionally the people who designed and built systems like this would end up dying horribly. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow... The system itself decided to wipe me out once I was done with it. You know, once once I'd ceased being useful. Uh, apparently, I'm now the biggest threat to the system. So yeah, uh, my wallets are going to just get um, get absolutely wrecked. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious. You wrote the white paper for Dalby. How how is implementing it? You know, there's this general idea within crypto that the tools aren't there yet, but it seems like you're already able to run. You know, quite interesting and. Um, valuable simulations through these agent models and by just giving people, you know, a functioning um, token. So how have you found that to be? Like, was it lined up with the white paper? Was it all like relatively straightforward to do these simulations now? Or were there a lot of like unexpected issues? Um, I would say for us, it was relatively easy, but all of our systems have been in testing for at least 2000 years. So sort of the... 2,000 years of Chinese guys have, have worked through the kinks and, <laughs> and handed us a good document to work with. If I was building something 100% from scratch, um, which a lot of protocols are, I would be a lot more worried about that. Mm, gotcha. And who do you find participating in Dalby? Like, what's the general profile? I would say it's about two-thirds ancient China guys and LARP guys and maybe one-third crypto guys. A little bit of overlap between the two sometimes as well. <laughs> yeah. Are you still like actively playing yourself? Are you? Do you have designs at, at Chancellorhood? Oh, no. I, and I deliberately um, sort of recused myself because if, if we're promoting the game and I'm also the boss, it just seems like another scammy... Um, 
rug pull projects. But if someone else is the boss, then it's legit. So the boss actually is. So uh, maybe for people who aren't familiar with it, um, how does one become the boss of Dalby? Okay, so the the whole structure of the game is that you're trying to become chancellor of an ancient state uh, in which the blockchain itself represents the emperor. So to become chancellor, you've got to build up a faction, and you build up a faction by getting people to swear to sort of swear allegiance to you on chain, uh, and then whoever has the most followers, the chain will automatically appoint them chancellor. Um, and so from that point on, they get uh, a salary of 2,000 Dalby a day. They get full control over the Discord, um, can do everything except delete it. And um, they also get to control the token minting rate so they can control inflation. So we just had a chancellor change a couple of days ago. The guy who's been in for eight, about eight months got kicked out. Um, and he knew he was about to get kicked out, so he did a, a lot of huge mints of Dalby so he could reward his friends by letting them buy at a cheap price. That's amazing. How, how and why do, do does a chancellorship change hands? You know, eight months is a pretty stable reign uh, for, for something like this, it seems to me. In crypto, like, what are, that's like, that's like a, a thousand years. <laughs> exactly. Multiple multiple dynasties have, have come and gone. So what like what what can you offer someone to get them to swear allegiance to you what how how is this this moving back and forth between the the human participants uh usually it's bribery so um, <laughs> we in the same way that google's motto is don't be evil our motto is do be evil so a anything that would be kind of breaking the rules in any other crypto governance system here it's factored in uh and the the idea is that if, if it's possible to do on-chain, then it's legal. So code is law. Usually it's bribery, but um, I think the, the current chancellor change was at least partially sparked by the fact that the, the, the former chancellor admitted to um, calling, in, <laughs> calling in the city authorities to get some cats killed behind his building because they were pissing off. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, this was a real-world cat-killing scandal led yeah. to uh, a chancellorship <laughs> change. <laughs> wow. I'll never be chancellor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mm, interesting. Uh, man, that's, Mitchell's that's, cat is probably on edge now. I know. Really here, like, you, you wouldn't believe how many, how many, how many barrels of bleach I have. Yeah, yeah, but that's just for uh, for your own personal pleasure, I assume. <laughs> right. we, we want, we want. <laughs> Discuss that. Awesome. So, I, <laughs> moving on from the cat killing scandal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's you know that the cat killing podcast is the next podcast. You're, you're confusing our topics. So, uh, you, I'm curious. You know, now that you know Dalby is up and running, it's going. People are using it. It's it's successful and fun. Where have you turned your attention now? Do you have any other projects that you're really excited about? It like what do you what do you have your hands in these days? Uh, so we're trying to get, um, I, I'd be interested in getting a Dalby spin-off going, because obviously this was based on the, um, the ancient Chinese agent-based models, but we've got a whole other set of European agent-based models, which we have a design for how we would implement that, and we could repurpose the Dalby contracts, sort of fork the chain and create a, create a medieval Europe game. Um, I want, I want Elizabethan England, I think I've told you this many times, you oh, know? Oh, yeah. With yeah, yeah, the Cecils and... Who, who uh, gets to? You're just going to be the bard of, uh, <laughs> you know, spinning your songs for for cash. That's correct. I will be Edward Devere. 
Uh, of course, uh, of course. The Spanish Armada flocking in and, and Zerg rushing. Uh, <laughs> There's so many uh, op- opportunities here. Yeah, the, and the reason we didn't start with that, I think it would have had a much bigger audience than the Chinese one to start with, but the code is is trickier to write. But because because that one involves, it's, it's much more fighting-based than bribery-based. Um, you could, in theory, hook it up to a strategy game front-end or a fighting game front-end and and you know, if if you lose a fight in the game, then your wallet gets emptied or something like that. Which yeah, I, I would think I would find fun. Mm, but um, evil total war linked up to crypto wallets. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, online mugging. That is that is our next project. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. What well, could you could you hook something up so people have to meet up in real life and fight, and then they have their digital wallets empty? Oh yeah. That way. <laughs> well, that's. That was sort of a question that came up repeatedly when we first started. Um, uh, people would come in and say, can, can the chancellor execute someone? And the answer was always, well, yeah, if he goes around to his house and kills him in real life, then yes, he can. <laughs> he, can't, he can't murder someone on the Discord, though. He, no. can, can you be banned from the Discord by the chancellor? He just says, you're gone. I don't want yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he can do that. And uh, Well, another thing we were looking into was, um, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, it was on Dragon's Den. It's uh, it's like a a Fitbit, but to cure you of bad habits, it, it gives you an electric shock every time you smoke a cigarette or something. Oh no! Mm. It's like the logical like continuation of some of the stuff I saw in healthcare IT, where it's like yeah. give everyone a Fitbit, make sure like up their premium if they're not walking. But yeah, the electric shocks. I mean, this is also things. like you know sort of the dystopian version of even like an, a well-aligned AI, right? Is the AI says, well, uh, my goal is to protect humans and smoking cigarettes is bad, right? So if you do this, I'm going to I'm gonna give you some extreme pain and, and punish you for your, yeah. for your bad habits, right? Yeah, and it, uh, we, we've been checking it out because we, we thought it'd be really funny to start a, fac- a faction where the chancellor can, uh, can actually um, sort of electrocute Elect- him for not doing <laughs> what he says. Um, and it turns out this thing was repurposed by perverts about three seconds after it came out. Of course, yeah. And there is actually code out there uh, for integrating it into um, into sort of hentai games. So how how yeah, long that's... until the perverts take over Dalby? Uh well, if if they manage to enforce the uh, their writs by electric shock treatment, I suspect they'll <laughs> <laughs> they'll do pretty well. Yeah, of course. I'll play that one. <laughs> I mean, constantly. Yeah, yeah. Once you once you've taken care of all the cats behind your uh, in your apartment. <laughs> that's that's part of my whole kink. So yeah. Well, hey, you know, maybe this is a, a smooth transition. Speaking of cats, uh, Jen, you're working on something called LexiCat. Oh uh, yeah. Did did you like that transition? I had that one in my in my pocket for a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, um, I was impressed by that. Thank you. Well, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, about LexiCat. Um, you know, you say no code text analysis. What is, exactly does that mean, and, and what is that what is that offering to people? Oh yeah, so that's my real world company, um, which we founded just before COVID hit. Uh, which, yeah, with hindsight, we could have chosen a better time. Mm-hmm. So that started off being um, sort of large language models before large language models were cool. We, we were analyzing survey data and social media listening data and stuff using, uh, using what seems like a very primitive word to vec database now. And, you know, touting it around VCs. And of course, 
at the time everyone was um you know horny for the metaverse and not interested in ai so so we didn't we didn't do spectacularly well with that but um we we're still going with it we pivoted towards doing more underserved languages so right now we're working on gpt burmese oh wow and we've also got a project for a generalist agent that we're we're sort of tinkering away on in our spare time can, can i ask why burmese in particular like it, it was there some sort of personal connection or is you know the crunching the numbers said Burma is the next place to pop. Yeah, well, it's two main things. I think A, I've got contacts in in Myanmar, and B, um, no one else wants it, so so we have free reign. You know, Google and and uh, and IBM and all the others. Given the sanctions that there are against Burma, do it, the cost of doing business is just too high for them to take an interest. Um, but for us, if we could just lock down this one model, and then we've got Burma for the rest of our lives to live off. A very mm. British Empire spirit, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I mean, this is interesting because I think it, it raises some questions that I'm curious if you've thought a lot, a lot about about just the problems of like AI access and you know who who are the people with access to to what models and how do they get locked out? So as as someone who's you know actively building something for an underserved population, underserved market, AI underserved, which is a sort of funny concept in itself. Do you, what sort of implications do you think that that will have as AI expands? Who has access to the latest models or like you know their their native languages? Do you think there's going to be real power imbalances that arise from it, or is it sort of going to even out in the end, or things are going to iterate so fast it won't matter? I think it probably is going to contribute to a reduction in linguistic diversity, which mm. I feel a bit guilty about since I'm contributing to that. But if if I didn't do it, someone else would. Um, because people are training these models using huge data sets. And for, for, for Burmese, we pretty much need to get every word of Burmese that has ever been published because there's <laughs> a lot on the internet and just distill it down into slop, <laughs> feed it through the model and come out with something that approximates standard Burmese but doesn't necessarily reflect dialect speech and, and so on. Mm. Um, and yet, yeah, th- there is, I would say, a, a real dilemma surrounding a lot of languages. So the the African languages with tiny corpora, for example, you can generate fake data with the data you have to get enough data to train a model. And the model will be something that approximates the language. It'll be, you know, mutually intelligible. And that could be a way of preserving a language that is going to die out but you're also preserving a particular version of it which is not necessarily a a totally accurate representation of how it was spoken or written in the real world what do you what do you mean when you say like create fake data like new new texts that are 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 being written in order to be fed into the machine or, or something else completely yeah, so the machine writes new texts and then trains itself on them, basically. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's. I think it's. It's going to be the. Um, well, so, someone was bringing this up a couple of weeks ago. The unvaxxed sperm of the data age is going to be pre-GPT language data. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Is there? Is there? Um, 
will they let it live? <laughs> you know, <laughs> will will they will that sperm get to uh, to reproduce and make itself, or is it going to be sequestered? Yeah, I think people are too desperate for more data right now. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've got AI CEOs on on Twitter openly admitting that they've stolen data. So people reusing post GPT um, corpora is probably not going to be a big deal for a lot of years yet. And it, and probably by the time we notice that it's affecting the way we speak, it will already have had its effect, so it'll be too late to do anything. You said, uh, I just want to kind of like jump to something slightly different, which was you said that you were working on a scary new AI. What, what, is, what is that that you're working on? Oh, yeah. So that I was just tweeting about this today. Um, so that was a design that we made back in 2019, and then we patented it in 2020, and then let the patent drop because we thought we were going insolvent under COVID, and there wasn't much point keeping it. Uh, but now we have the capacity... The, you know, the monetary capacity and also the technological capacity to build it, because if, if we'd wanted to do it back in the day, we would have basically had to make our own codex from scratch, which would have been uh, a lot of work. So this is, it, it, it's an agent that whenever it's faced with a new problem, it spawns a subsystem purely for dealing with that problem. And when it's managed to solve the problem, it saves the code it used to do it to a database and then uses that database to retrain itself. So in theory, if it solves problem A, solving problem A will then make it faster at solving problem B, which might only be tangentially related, but it's in a broadly similar domain. So uh, the previous expertise becomes useful. You can deploy it in a variety of different ways. So you can deploy it in a useful way, I would say, by giving everyone their own personal AI that will gradually mold itself to their preferences and become a sort of internet exoskeleton um, that knows what they're interested in and the kind of code they're probably going to want to generate and has a huge library based on their past preferences to generate new stuff from. Or, as an alternative, you can, um, Bronze Age pervert style, give it the goal of occupying more hard disk space And then it gets really interesting because then it becomes an independent animal just exploring its own environment and trying to expand and coming up with new ideas for trying to break out of the box. Uh, So it's the second one that we're most interested in because the first one I feel like probably some Silicon Valley is going to stumble across it um, you know, in in a few months and they're going to make a gorillion dollars off it and we we don't really have the capacity to, to outrun them. But uh, but the dangerous one, no one else cares about or wants to make. So I think we we have again. It's like it's like Berman. No one else wants to go there. So uh, we'll be the ones to go there. And uh, <laughs> how how do we how do we keep you from uh, destroying the world? Uh, or is well, it really not? Is it, is it even worth help. it? Yeah, bribery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how much money have you got? Uh, and I have, <laughs> I've tried taking this to sort of several governments, just saying, even if we don't make it, Kim Jong-un is going to make it in a year's time. So maybe you want to get prepared for that. Um, and this this was in the days before large language models got scary, so no one really paid attention. Um, but yeah. Uh, so now you're kind of hot. Yeah, I wish we were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're too old now. Um, VC is very sort of trend sucky. And if 
if you're a company that's been touting models around for the past five years, uh, you're going to get past, and especially a profitable company, because the last thing they want is for you to be profitable. They want you to have a fantastic burn rate. Um, yeah, you're going to get passed over for um, sort of a 26-year-old Harvard McKinsey in a polo neck. Um, but yeah, no, it, it may happen. We we might get a load of money to uh, to to develop some fantastically dangerous AIs. And we may not get a load of money and develop them anyway and then rob some <laughs> banks or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so when you're when you're working on like this sort of AI, do you have particular goals in mind? Like, are you thinking, all right, I want to use this AI to accomplish a set of tasks? Or are you just sort of saying like, hey, let's soup this up and see what we can do with it? Yeah, we, we were having a discussion about this on Twitter, I think, today saying that uh, there's an inherent contradiction, I think, between generalization and utility, because utility is measured via the ability to complete a specific task. And therefore, if you increase utility, you tend to decrease generalization. So I would rather build a truly general AI that is useless to humans for my own preference. But then if I have to make money, then obviously I'm going to make a useful AI. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, you know, just... Maybe I just watched too much Terminator recently, but do do you find yourself actually concerned with sort of existential dread questions? Do you are you able to just sort of abstract them away, or do you feel we're not actually going to reach that scenario, or it's it's impossible to plan for? So we we you know you might as well get yours while it's happening. Yeah, pretty much the latter. Um. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, uh, COVID pretty much wipes our finances out. So um, right now, all we have is the business, and that's going down the tubes if um, GPT-5 <laughs> takes most of our revenue. So, um, so yeah, I think it's every man for himself right now, and devil take the hindmost. We've got to get ours out as quickly as possible before before someone else does. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, for someone then who was who was slightly more concerned about the survival of the human species, which, you know, do you think that such a person is it, is there anything that someone like that can do if they're concerned about AI or is this all like you know you said Kim Jong Un is going to have this in a year anyway is there is there any choice for for anyone but to just throw their hands up and see where it goes Yeah I would say you know you can buy a farm in in the Hebrides or Siberia mm-hmm. or somewhere um Somaliland apparently is nice this time of year um <laughs> Yeah, no, I I would hope that humans would be good enough at, at coming up with a modus vivendi with whatever comes out of this pipeline um, mm-hmm. that that we'll find a way through. We'll probably end up, you know, fatter and more depressed as a result, but um, but it'll be life of a sort. Wow, that's we, we've depressing. been trending that way anyway, right? So it's just, it's just sort of skipping to the end. I th- this is I thought that so I I live in in Montana, which is is far away from most things and i thought well you know the ai apocalypse comes i'll just i'll go even deeper into the woods and you know get off the grid and maybe it'll find me last but it it turns out that the u.s has has buried all its nukes in montana and (laughs) uh, (laughs) and if something goes awry it's all it's almost it's quite likely to happen here first so i've I've now decided that there's just actually (laughs) nowhere you can get to and anymore that uh that is safer or not not going to bring about your doom in some manner. I know? think so, um, the yeah. physical the physical world is is probably going to always be a hard barrier to it. 
So if, if you are out in the middle of the woods, um, it's never not going to be crap at manipulating physical objects. Mm-hmm. Um, just you because, you're not concerned about nanorobots? Not really, but it could just be because I don't necessarily know enough about them to be worried. The grey goo thing uh, yeah, always seemed yeah. fantastically distant. But um, yeah, no, I, I guess if humanity is stupid enough to give AI the control over its its factories and so on, then, then we more for humanity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I guess it is with with so many of these scenarios is like you don't you we don't reach that point in the road unless we took ourselves there. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, I guess uh, a lesson for whoever's watching us, you know, whoever's yeah. running our simulation when it re- when it reboots, you know, will be will be one step closer and and someone someone on a podcast somewhere will say, "Is it really learning? Is it is it <laughs> just looking like it?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think a, AGI is, is inevitable, and that is definitely coming. But robots walking around in the street shooting people for smoking a cigarette, that will be something that we chose if it happens. So, Shenyang, you've been on Urbit now for almost two years. I'm curious, you know, where did you learn about Urbit? What do you think about it? How has that kind of evolved over time? So... When I first heard about it, I honestly didn't think anything at all about it. Um, someone gave me a free planet, and I passed it off to our lead developer, saying, you might like this. Um, <laughs> that was re-gifting. Me. Yeah. <laughs> she, she re-gifted my planet. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but the, then I got another one. Um, and the second time, uh, I did actually... You know, I I think I had more time on my hands then, and because uh, I'd I'd always been sort of very much into decentralization and all the cypherpunk stuff, and um, willing to jump on any you know silly libertarian project like the the seasteading thing or McAfee's candidacy. Um, and after I had some time to look into it properly, I thought, yeah, I really like this idea. I'm gonna. Um, boot it up and have a go uh and it it wasn't as easy as it is now back in the day there was some command line um uh chiggery pokery yeah one click now imagine how many Yangs we can get on now yeah and i think um the onboarding project is getting uh process is getting easier and easier i know one of the dow b guys um just got on uh and he was saying how easy it was, which was not something I'd heard before. So that yeah, the new version seems to have won won some adherents. Yeah, it's changed quite a lot just since ETH Denver, even with Chorus One and now Talon hosting and Third Earth. Just overall, it feels like I don't know. People aren't having that much trouble getting onto the network now. It feels pretty easy for that regard. Yeah, and and we've we have sort of looked vaguely at the idea about getting a a version of Dalby running on the Urbit chain as well, um, which mm, Ufargo's live. Yeah, it yeah. would involve one of us having to learn Hoon. So at the yeah, moment, we're yeah. kind of passing gonna, that parcel around. But you're going to um, draw straws and see who <laughs> it has to be. Yeah, well, whoever tolerates the electric bracelet for the least amount of time is, uh, <laughs> is our yeah. Hoon student. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you you said you're obviously into the de- decentralization decentralization aspects of Urbit, but you said that you're quite bullish on Urbit, and I think that 
takes a little bit more than just thinking it's a nice idea. So what what about Urbit do you think really, you know, where do you see the potential and how do you see it growing or interacting with Web3 or AI? Like what is really appealing to you about it right now? Just from, you know, the business case perspective, I would say the fact that it's not dead yet. After, <laughs> after you know, several years in operation, um, that's quite unusual. Um, and not only is it not dead, you see, you encounter a lot more people talking about it and people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be into it. Uh, quite often on Twitter, I've just found some random person that I knew via some other... Um, uh, points of contact saying oh yeah have you seen this thing it's called urbit it's really good so um yeah. that should be our that should be our like our new tagline for urbit you know like urbit not dead yet <laughs> not not even dead yeah. yet <laughs> yeah yeah this urbit thing it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> still here after all these uh -huh. years yeah i yeah. mean that no i i have seen i i will say you know i i've seen various sort of web3 social platforms come and go especially being in the startup ecosystem in singapore over the past couple of years um everyone had a Littered shitty metaverse yeah 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 um so yeah and, and so what do you th what do you think that like a dalby on urbit would look like or what would what would it gain uh by being on urbit um so the the goal or one of the goals with dalby was always to have people take it and repurpose it and do new things with it. And so one of those things would be the Elizabethan version. But <laughs> the contracts are quite easy to rewrite. So quite often we get people on the Dalby server saying, oh, this should be more Confucian or we should add, add something that gives people votes in proportion to how much money they have or something. Um, and it's 100% possible to do that with basic level solidity skills. So... I would hope that as really happened during the Han Dynasty, people will fork the chain and, and create their own versions with their own rules and, and they can compete and whichever is best will win. All right. Well, some, some urbit bullishness and the potential of moving ancient China over to urban Akbar seems like a great place to, to end this episode. So, Zhen uh, Yang, thank you so much for being here. This was an awesome discussion. I, I learned a ton, and, and we really appreciated you coming to visit us over here on the Network Age. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. So we'll make sure to put all her uh, her info in the show notes so you can follow her and and get on Dalby and and begin your journey to the to the chancellorship. So to to all our listeners out there, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time on The Network Age. Thanks for listening. For more Network Age content, you can find us on Twitter. The link's in the show notes. And please go over to Apple and give us a five-star review. If you do, we might read it out on air, like this one from Hanreich Terper. More than just Urbit. I recommend this podcast to anyone with even a passing interest in the future of technology. They interview a wide variety of guests, which keeps the show from repeating the same themes and also gives different perspectives for those of us who aren't great at getting out of our narrative bubbles. While the show is more generally tech-focused, the hosts are heavily involved in the Urbit community. So if that's your thing, you'll get a healthy dose of Urbit along the way too. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.